the way we use Xiaoyuan for stress really comes out of that early 20th century moment. We want to expand our, I think, our, our clinical repertoire because there's other things that we, I think, we need to be thinking about. And, and constraint is this really complicated idea that has so many permutations and different uh, presentations uh, so that we want to recognize that we may have a limit, limited view of it. But I think you're right. But I think you're right. This idea of stress, which is, again, it's the most nondescript sort of term out there. I don't know what it means clinically, but it becomes a kind of catch-all, I think, a little bit like neurasthenia did. And so our first thought, it goes right to Shiyosan and liver cheek constraint. Hi, Michael Max here, and this is Geological. Outrage is the new drug. It's available on the 24-7 news feed. You can get a dose in your favorite distraction machine chat group. Our increasingly polarized and interconnected world seems to serve it up at every turn. You might find it in your practice as well. That patient that no-shows or doesn't take their herbs or, <laughs> I like this one, finally listens to their OBGYN when they say don't eat sugar after you've been telling them to do that for months. There are so many moments in a day when we get angry or frustrated because others don't see things the way that we do. But really, these are all moments to practice one of the most difficult things for a human being, to practice some empathy. Empathy is hard. You've probably heard me here on the podcast mention Seth Grodin. I started reading his stuff years ago, trying to understand something about marketing because frankly... He doesn't sound like a marketing guy. He's a keen observer of human nature, how we connect, and maybe more importantly, how we don't. Empathy isn't particularly difficult for those with whom we feel a sense of kinship, but it's another story altogether when we look to extend empathy to those that we seek to serve or understand, but hold a vastly different point of view. Here are a few questions. They're powerful questions that I got from Uncle Seth that can help you to extend your empathy beyond its usual bounds. Three questions. What do they see that I don't see? What do they want that I don't want? And what, this one's great, what do they believe that I don't believe? Take a moment and consider these questions with, say, the people enrolled in Weight Watchers or the people that exercise compulsively or not at all or those who think that pharmaceutical medication actually makes them healthier or those who spend more money and thought on their dog's health care than their own. And here's one that'll test your boot of nature, those who live on the other side of the political spectrum. The trick here is not to use pejorative language in your thinking, but rather positive language. Can you actually get the positive intent in their point of view? If you find this little exercise to be difficult, then you're doing it right. Empathy is hard. It's hard because it requires that you find a place in yourself that can understand other people without having to agree with them. So that for a moment you can see and feel their experience without your usual storyline, beliefs and judgments, and oh man, do I know I have those. A lot of people think empathy and tolerance are similar, but I suspect that empathy is actually the polar opposite of tolerance. Tolerance requires a stance of strength. It's really young when you think about it. Empathy on the other hand, unfolds with a softness. It's yin. It comes from yielding. Not the kind of yielding of weakness, but the yielding of being rooted, stable enough in yourself that you can see and understand someone else from their own point of view, right? So for a moment to stop selling yourself on yourself and your beliefs and listen for understanding, understanding from a perspective and a stance that for you is a foreign country. Empathy is hard. And I suspect it's a worthwhile practice. And you'll fail all the time. I still think it's worth cultivating. And if you need some help with this, go visit Uncle Seth over at www.seth.blog. You might learn a thing or two about marketing in the process. All right. I've got a quick housekeeping thing here, and then we're going to get into today's conversation on chi constraint, something you'll no doubt run into on the way to being more fluent with a sense of empathy. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs 
is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. My guest today is Eric Karchmer. Eric is a Chinese medicine practitioner and assistant professor of anthropology at Appalachian State University. He studied Chinese medicine at the Zhongyao Dashe, that's the Beijing University of Chinese Medicine. And he graduated with a BA in medicine in the year 2000. By the way, a BA from that school, it's like a couple steps above the MAs that we get here in the States. It's no small thing. In addition to practicing and teaching, Eric has an interest in medical anthropology, science studies, the politics and knowledge, Chinese medicine, Chinese studies, colonial and post-colonial societies, and ethnobiology. What's more, he's published articles with titles like The Excitations and Suppressions of Time, Locating Emotional Disturbances in Modern Chinese Medicine, as well as Slow Medicine, How Chinese Medicine Became Efficacious Only for Chronic Conditions. I'm telling you, he's a geeky dude. Today, we're sitting down for a little conversation about something that y'all think is one of the garden variety diagnoses of Chinese medicine, liver chi constraint. Guess what? It's a fairly recent idea. So buckle up 
hold on to your worldview. Things are going to get a little woogity in here. Eric, welcome to Geological. Uh, thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure to be here. I want to start out. I've got a question here. How does a guy who teaches in Appalachia, a guy who works at a place called Boone Healing Arts, find himself in China studying medicine? I don't think you were there looking for the ultimate jaltsa. Uh <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, st I started in China first, and so I, I came to Appalachia uh, later. Uh, I spent many years living in China, kind of starting in the late 80s. I took a break in the early 90s. I was got interested in anthropology and went to study for a PhD in anthropology at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And then in the mid-90s, I went back to do my PhD research, and, and one thing led to another, and uh, I ended up sort of getting that BA, as you mentioned, in uh, Chinese medicine at the Beijing University of Chinese medicine that led to a lot of things and a clinical practice and more research and eventually ended up also teaching anthropology here at um, Appalachian State University. So anthropology came first and then the medicine came a little later. That's right. I, I started studying anthropology. This might sound a little silly to your viewers, but um, maybe it was a, the times or maybe it was just my own background, but it, the, the idea of studying Chinese medicine just seemed impossible to me. I didn't, I didn't know who did it. I never imagined I didn't really know about schools here in the U.S. It was something that intrigued me, but I also had this interest in China first. So, uh, so yeah, the, so I became kind of fascinated with Chinese society and, and, you know, kind of venture into Chinese medicine. You've got this really vast background. I'm curious to know what was the thing? What was that first thing that really kind of caught your attention and made you go China? What, what drew you? to that place? What drew you to that culture? Um, well, <laughs> like a lot of things in, in my career, I, I kind of backed into it. I was just looking for uh, a way to avoid going. I was a pre-med in college and I was just looking for a way to go to avoid medical school, uh, which is, I kind of was, <laughs> which I felt I sort of had said I was going to do that. And I think my, maybe my parents expected that. I don't know, but I just wanted something different than what I've been doing in college. And, and I got a chance to teach English in China and that changed everything. Yeah. You took, you took that chance. That's great. Before that, I'd never studied Chinese language. I, I couldn't have been more ignorant about, about China, never mind Chinese medicine. Yeah. So you learned your Chinese over there, I suspect. Yeah, I did. I did. So I, I went there and I, and again, I had to, I mean, I wouldn't have, I don't, never would have imagined learning Chinese, except that I kind of had to at that time, you know, very few people spoke English and I started studying and that actually was kind of, it was kind of through the language that I became, you know, really fascinated in China. Once I was able to speak suddenly, like this whole world opened up to me and and that, I mean, that led to the anthropology and then ultimately to the, to the Chinese medicine. And ultimately to the medicine. It's such a unique combination to have that deep, deep, very deep cultural view into the, into the, well, into the place and into the people and into the history. And then to be able to take and overlay the medicine with it. Well, it's been a journey, but it's, it's, but it's always been a fascinating one. So I feel, I feel fortunate and it's, like I said, I backed into it, but it worked out in some ways very nicely. If I'd ever planned to do it, I don't even know how I would have oh done it. I, you know, how many of us actually plan the lives that we have? Mm -hmm. I, I think very few. Most of us, it comes from the periphery. We back into it. We get a lucky break that at the time seemed like a disaster. Yeah. Know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really like that. I mean, even to study Chinese medicine the way I did, I mean, that was definitely not allowed, um, you know, in, in my PhD program, but it, I mean, it was tolerated, I guess, because like, I came back to finish the PhD when I finished the Chinese medicine studies. If you were to try to do that in grad school now, it, it, you, I think you just get kicked out. I almost got kicked out, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, I love it how, you know, the Chinese language is so expressive. They say things like, uh, right? That's impossible. Yeah. Which, which means keep negotiating. But if they say, uh, oh, I'm sorry, that's inconvenient. Forget it. You're screwed. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> uh, well, you know, one one thing that's been really special about le learning Chinese medicine in, in Chinese was the language. And um, and it's so rich. Uh, and and I suspect a lot of that is uh, is lost in translation. And then being able and getting, you know, I, I wasn't, I was, you know, a reasonably good conversationalist when I started, but I really wasn't great at reading or writing Chinese. And so I had to get up to speed in that. And, and but that also opened like all these doors to all this literature that's available in China. It's, you know, that was special. Right. You get, you get access to the literature and you get access to the nuance, which, which is something else. So, so let's dive into this topic here. Liver cheek constraint. 
you you sent me an article about this recently that was really eye-opening. So for our listeners that, that haven't had a chance to read the article, actually, would it be possible to put a copy of it up on the website so they can go get it? Uh, absolutely. And it's uh, it's available through open access, any, you know, so that they could, um, I think what we'd have to do is a link. We'd have to, we'd have a link, but it's available through open access. And actually it's published together with uh, three other papers. It was part of a collective research project. So for people who are interested in the topic, they want to also really want to look at the other papers because I was working at the time with uh, Volker Scheid, who some of your listeners may know. And I was also working with Su Young Su, who's a scholar of Korean medicine, and Keiko Dadiji, who's a scholar of Japanese medicine. And we all wrote about constraint and its sort of different meanings and valences in Korea, Japan, and China. And, and Volker took, took a much sort of earlier look at its meanings and um, kind of late imperial times. So all those papers really go nicely together, and they're very, very, it'll really give you a full picture of the meaning of that term. Terrific. It's, uh, it'll be up there on uh, geological.com. Just look for the show notes page for this. So, Eric, talk to us about constraint. Where did where does this idea come from? Well, it's it's a it's a it's a it's an old term, uh, <laughs> and it's you know it's it's there in the inner canon. It goes through some different permutations, and uh, the paper by Volkerscheid will, if I remember correctly, will looks at sort of like what happens to it sort of in the post Song era. My particular paper looks looks at the term. And the way it, it changes in the early 20th century China. And so one thing I think probably most of your, of your listeners aren't aware of is just how much Chinese medicine has evolved and changed. And I would I'd argue even been through a couple of revolutions over its sort of 2000 years of plus of, of, of history and practice. And uh, certainly one important change was in, in the early 20th century. That's, that's the part I know the best. This idea of sort of liberty constraint is something that it's not it's not born in the 20th century it's an, a late imperial idea but it's very different than the idea of constraint that you would find in another formula that your listeners might be aware of which is the judanshi formula yejuan which yejuan mm-hmm. escape restraint pill maybe i believe is how it's yeah confused. i think that's it mm-hmm. now one thing that's confusing is i think that a lot of writing on that particular formula, for instance, is then written through the idea of liberty constraint because it does have um, shangfu in that formula. And so people then will try to make that formula primarily about liberty constraint and then dealing with, uh, I think it's the six other types of constraint, uh, food, phlegm, fire, um, dampness. Uh, and uh, we'll argue that it's it starts with liberty constraint. Uh, and this is where Volker's article will be very helpful here. But if you if you look at the formula, it doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of that formula. I think it's really talking about maybe constraint in the middle burner. It's a very different idea of constraint, frankly. And uh, when you get to the 20th century, and this is sort of what I argued in my paper, some really interesting uh, things start to happen. A lot of scholars, some of the sort of more famous scholars that we know of, I'm, I think we, we might think of them as, as the convergence school, folks who were, were practitioners of Chinese medicine, but who also had a pretty strong foundation in Western medicine, they start sort of pulling in some ideas from Western medicine, and then constraint becomes something that's like quintessentially in, in the liver for, for these folks. Uh, that's not they didn't totally invent that, but they, but I think they made it a thing. <laughs> they sort of popularized it. They, they popularized it, and the way they justified it is super interesting. And so this is what I talk about in my paper. The argument that they made, it's an argument that would be, by today's terms, almost laughable, but they argued that, um, but I think it's the basis for the way that like formulas like Xiaoyaos and Rambling Powder, you know, get used today. They argued that uh, the liver in Chinese medicine is, is analogous to the nervous system. Now, where did they get this idea? We, I remember in school, we were thinking nervous system. They kind of threw that in with the kidneys in modern TCM. Uh, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Um, well, uh, a, a couple, I think a couple of things, one, you know, I don't know about your schooling, but you know, in, in my training, just teachers did not want their students to like be assuming sort of these correspondences between Western medicine and Chinese medicine. We were sort of taught that the, the Chinese medicine body, it's its own thing. It's, uh, for example, we, now we often say it's functional, uh, whereas in, in Western medicine, we might say it's 
you know, it's it's about structure. Uh, that's a that's a dichotomy that I that I think is problematic too. But it, it's that also begins to emerge in the during this time period. But for the Republican period doctors, uh, they didn't really have these misgivings about sort of conflating the two bodies or using using bits of anatomy and, and Western medicine to correct what they thought were mistakes in Chinese medicine or to, you know, yeah, correct mistakes, I think would be the best way of putting it. The nervous system also is kind of a new thing in the early 20th, early 20th century. So that's also part of it. And one kind of aspect of what made it one aspect of, so I think the nervous, I think there was a, now I'm, now I'm getting, I'm, I'm a little rough on the uh, details here, but I think that um, there was like a Nobel prize uh, given to um and I forget the name of the two scholars, two scholars, but it was like in the early 20th century for like the discovery of the nervous system yeah. uh, as we understand it. You know, so mm-hmm. it's a relatively new discovery just in the world of Western medicine. Right. And, and uh, so that would make sense that it's a new discovery in the world. It's a new discovery in the world. And, and one thing that became very popular sort of with that new discovery is this, uh, is this disease of neurasthenia, which is a very old fashioned disease that we don't talk about, but that was extremely popular in kind of in Japan and East Asia th- throughout the early 20th century. This is also a disease before we had like the disease of our modern psychiatric diseases like mm-hmm. depression. So what what would you say Nerstania is? What is it that they were looking at, you know, in terms of someone coming into their their clinic? Well, Nerstania could be uh, some things we call depression today. Probably it's going to be How's it going to present? Uh, insomnia would be part of it. Um, just uh, a lot of anxiousness. Uh, other things that were kind of very popular diseases at the time, like like loss of semen, spermatorrhea, uh, these other diseases of sort of weak, just general weakness. And it was thought to be a, a disease of modern societies too, where like the pace of life seems to be quickening. Uh huh. I mean, not unlike in our day, we call it stress. Yeah, a, 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 a lot like stress. Yes, yeah. Whatever that actually means, because when right. I mean, people come in, they've got all kinds of stuff going on. It could mm-hmm. be anything from a shoulder, you know, tight computer shoulders to headaches yep. to anxiety, all the things that they prescribe things like uh, Prozac for. Yeah. Yes. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and nurse neurasthenia was sort of the disease of. It was like a almost. It was almost an, an elite thing, even. Neil Durkheim uh, uh, called it, I think, the disease of the upper class or something like that. Sure. Yeah, farmers uh, don't have no time for that stuff. That's right. Yeah, farmers they just got to get to work. But uh, so uh, that was a that was a very popular a new diagnosis that was coming to China. And so some of these doctors in the early 20th century who are like speculating that the liver is a way of thinking about the nervous system are also trying to think how do we treat neurasthenia, and that became like a if you make that equation that the livers and, and the liver and the um, nervous system are related, then you've got like a link. Then you've then you've got a way. Okay, so maybe it's liver cheese stagnation, and so you can actually find uh, cases from some of these. It's a kind of a special set of doctors. It's not like I don't think it's necessarily every doctor from this period who are arguing that this is this is this like this idea of the nervous system helps us to under, better understand what the liver does and to better understand liver chi constraint. And now we've got, now that we have this way of thinking about it, we also have treatments for it. And it could be things like um, rambling powder, but other things, but treatments that go to the liver in particular. So back in this Republican era, I I know a little bit of the history. I don't know a lot. I know a little. First of all, there was the overthrow of the Qing dynasty. The Republicans come in. You know, it's not exactly a smooth transition, right? That's correct. Communists (laughs) kind of show up. World War II intervenes. I mean, pretty messy there for the first 40 years, you know, first 45, 50 years of the century. Yes, absolutely. And in the midst of all that, you know, the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party, right, they're, they're even trying to outlaw things like Chinese medicine. They're saying, this, you know, this is superstition, we got to get rid of it. And then there's a big backlash from, from Chinese doctors. Mm-hmm. So there's tons of stuff going on here. And, and also, like you said, there's these influences of Western thinking coming in. And, and not just Western thinking, but the newest ideas in Western thinking. Like you're saying, hey, look, there's a nervous system. Not too unlike these days. They go, look, there's inflammation everywhere. It's, it's suddenly kind of the thing that a lot of thought centers around. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So how is it? that liver chi constraint came to be 
such a garden variety diagnosis? Good, good question. I think, you know, uh, I think some of these Republican doctors were, were part of that, even though today we would, um, we would no longer, you would be laughed at probably for saying that the liver is analogous to the nervous system. But I think they were, they were, they helped us to think about treatments for neurasthenia. Neurasthenia definitely stuck around in China for a long time. Uh, in fact, even when I was a student in the late nineties, that was the beginning of like, I think Prozac was coming into China kind of in the very late nineties. Uh, but I still, I saw doctors still diagnosing neurasthenia. I, I'm thinking it would be diagnosed less and less today. And in fact, it's like, it's no longer, it's like, it's not in the DSM. It's no longer um, considered a, a, an appropriate biomedical diagnosis. It fell out of favor a long time ago, but it stuck around in China for a long time. So I think it became, that diagnosis was, um, and without, well, and I've hesitated to make some generalizations, but, it, but, it, but that was a pretty powerful diagnosis in a society where it was a little bit difficult to speak about mental illness. And, um, of course, there's a lot of treatments for all kinds of mental illness in, in, in Chinese medicine, but the, the biomedical kind of way of, of thinking about it wasn't too developed. And so neurasthenia, I think, had this very long life in China. And, uh, and I think that, that helped solidify this idea of liver chi constraint as being one way, not the, certainly not the only way, but one important way of, um, of of dealing with all kinds of emotional issues. Yeah. So I've I've heard this said that, and this is a generalization. So you know, take it with a big old shovel of salt. That Chinese culture, traditionally speaking, tends to somaticize emotions, mm -hmm. whereas here in the West, we tend to psychologize our physical experience. I think that that might come from Arthur Kleinman, <laughs> who's a medical, who's a medical anthropologist who's done a lot of work in, in China. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that we want to be careful about those divides because they're um, potentially misleading in, mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways, but Again, um, general screen of sorts. But I think that, but I think that's true. I, uh, I mean, I, even with my, in my own clinical practice here in the U S I have, uh, I have to kind of constantly explain to patients like the anxiety or depression or whatever. Those are, or those are things we can, we can work on. Like, you know, we get, we approach those things through the body in, in Chinese medicine. Uh, folks, I think in the West are not used to thinking that way because we probably tend to psychologize. We tend to have this mind body divide and we, we don't, and patients don't see those possibilities. Whereas I think in, Chi in at least in, certainly in Chinese medicine, it was, it was, you know, the mind was never separate from the body. Uh, and as I'm sure all your listeners know, um, there isn't much of a mind, you know, theoretically speaking in, in Chinese medicine. Uh, so you, we always go through the body. Uh, so I think, you know, so I think classically there, there, there's some, tr some truth to that. Um, although we, I'm sure we can find, um, as soon as I say that, well, well, somebody will point out lots of counterexamples. But <laughs> well, I mean, this is the thing about Chinese medicine, right? There's always counterexamples. Yeah, yeah. There's usually more than one right way to look at something, uh, mm -hmm. and those right ways often are contradictory. Uh, that's right, and you know, and, and with with this issue of constraint too, and that's why that's why I think it'd be great for um, your listeners to look at all four of those papers that we published, because um, constraint often involves emotional issues, although that's something that emerges slowly over time in China. But if you compare sort of Korea, Japan, and then China, maybe at its, and, uh, and others, other countries too, at its various time periods, you see a, a real evolution of, of the way constraint is dealt with. One thing I remember that was really interesting from, um, our research, I think my Japanese colleague Keiko Dadeji was really interested in a, in a Japanese scholar who, uh, who used, um, a formula called, uh, Fenshi Qiyin. Uh, which literally translates as the drink that separates heart chi. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm, that's probably a terrible translation. I don't know when. Divide the heart chi yin. Fen chi chi yin. So splitting the heart chi drink. Okay. Uh, that's a, that can't be a correct translation. And it's actually a formula that I feel like I don't really understand very well. But if you look at the formula, it has nothing to do with liver chi stagnation at all. But this was sort of uh, it, and it's an old Song Dynasty formula that's that's mostly fallen out of favor in China. It's not terribly important, but it it, it deals with uh, the lungs and perhaps the middle burner a little bit. And I think it's a, it's a formula that, if I remember correctly, it's sort of a combination of uh, Gui Pi Tang, so the cinnamon twig decoction, mm -hmm. and Wu Pi San, the five. Oh, the five uh, peels. Five peels. 
powder, which is about uh, edema and swelling uh, and qi deficiency, if I remember correctly. That's clearly like a very different understanding of uh, of constraint and a very different way of thinking of how constraint might relate to emotional con conditions. And that was a very popular formula for this one Japanese scholar that my colleague was looking at. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I will look that up or, or you could send it to me. Yes. Uh, okay. I'm going to put that in the show notes page. Okay. So that people can check that particular prescription out so they can... Uh, yeah. You know, get a sense yeah. of what we're talking about here. You know, sometimes it's it's so much easier if you can just look at the herbs in a formula. Yes. You yep. know a whole lot about what you're looking at. Yes. Right? Yeah. The for sure, for of, sure. a, of an illness is right inside of it. Yeah, for sure. But there's, it's not liver chi stagnation. That's for sure. Yeah. So <laughs> take us, can you take us on a short tour from Judan Shi and the, you had Juan to Shiaosan. And some of the different ways that constraint has been seen and worked with through your, uh, well, both clinical and anthropological lens. I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, and actually, this is probably where Volker's paper is going to be, uh, Volker's science paper is going to be helpful. But if we, uh, but Yeju Wan, uh, you know, is a formula developed by Ju Danxi, so this 15th century a uh, scholar, a uh, doctor, um, now kind of considered one of the, the one of the four great masters of the genus Yuan period. Supposedly, it treats uh, f you know six different types of uh, stagnation. There's been a lot of debate about that formula, and later scholars uh, have argued, for example, uh, that it's maybe a little bit more of a it's, 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 it is both clinically useful, but it's also sort of an, I guess, an overview of the different types of constraint you can encounter in your practice. Uh, and you should modify that formula as, as needed. But something that definitely goes a little bit more to the, it's got Sangju in it, attractilities. And so it's something that goes a little bit more to the middle burner. And it's thinking of sort of a, some sort of, um, uh, impediment, some sort of obstacle to the, the chi mechanism, to the chi g, the sort of up and down movements of, of chi in the body. So it's a, the idea of the liver is definitely quite secondary. Xiaoyao-san, and I'm going to be a little rough on the history here too, is a formula that is originally kind of a gynecological formula. It's not really used primarily in gynecology for you know many, many centuries. Uh, and in the late imperial period, and I'm going to forget who uh, could be Zhao uh, Shanke, I think, if I'm, if I'm right. Uh, some late imperial scholars start saying this is something that we can use in general for men and women. Some of the emotional ideas are uh, kind of become, start becoming more important there. But that's something that's, you know, really quite different than Ye Juwan and uh, what Ju Danxi was talking about. And then it's, I would say it's really in the Republican period that this idea of um, a liver chi constraint really kind of becomes extremely important and, and this way for the quintessential way for dealing with emotional issues. And of course, and if, you know, when you study, when you study about liver cheek constraint, it's, I mean, one confusing thing is that we know that liver is the anger is the emotion that's related to the liver. Uh, yep. But with a shayasan and liver cheek constraint, we think of it as sort of treating all emotions too. So whether it's stress or depression or uh, anxiety. And so that becomes sort of our, the first one we go to and that, that itself may be, a bit of a problem. <laughs> well, you know, um, it, it, given what we were talking about earlier with neurasthenia and how 
in some ways, it's a little bit like I'm using air quotes here, stress. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're using mm -hmm. it in the same way. I mean, we're thinking about it as if it were neurasthenia. We're thinking about it as this overall thing about life. If you're not just a farmer eking out a living, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you got mm -hmm. time to actually be concerned about your emotions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back then they were looking at it and going, oh, yeah, well, there's this nervous system thing that we've just discovered. And, and, and one of the things to me about Chinese medicine that's fascinating, and, and you've got a deeper view of this than I do, so please correct me if I stray too far out of the boundaries here. But it seems like Chinese medicine has been very good at looking at things, you know, looking at nature, looking at how things unfold, being able to notice change and the pace and rate of change. And when new ideas come in, one of the first things they do is they snap up on it and go, all right, how's this fit in with everything else that we know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's a little bit like the Borg, right? <laughs> Something new comes in and it goes, all right, we're going to grab this and add it. You know, we're going to use your uniqueness and add it to our collective. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly, I mean, I think that the way we use Xiaoyuan for stress uh, really comes out of that early 20th century uh, kind of moment. I, I, again, I think it's a... We want to, we want to expand our I think our, our clinical repertoire because there's other things that we I think we need to be thinking about and, and constraint is um, and one of the things we wanted to show in this project too was that constraint is this really complicated idea that has so many permutations and different uh, presentations uh, so that we want to recognize that it's uh, that we may have a lim limited view of it but I think you're right but I think you're right this idea of stress which is again. Um, it's the most nondescript sort of term out there. I don't know what it means clinically, but it becomes a kind of catch-all, I think, a little bit like Neurostania did. And so our first thought, it goes right to Shiyosan and liver cheek constraint. And, I, and that also, I think, misses, also misses the point a little bit about some of the, the um, uh, Republican-era doctors who were thinking about the, the liver and the nervous system together. And and when I've, as I remember correctly, when I was looking at some of their cases, I don't think I ever saw Shiyosan in, in any of their clinical cases, per se, although they they were thinking about the liver in, in different ways and had different kind of herbs for treating the liver, but it wasn't necessarily about, um, it might be a more of a, a liver kidney um, double deficiency or something like that, that, uh, that they were trying to treat. So they also there there was a, there was a richness I think also to their um, their own innovations too that's also been lost too and and uh, in kind of its aftermath and their writings have kind of you know even in China that's that's mostly forgotten and when I when I tell some of my classmates or, or friends in China about oh you should have seen what uh, Lu Yanlei or Yun Tie Chao said about the liver they're 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 sort of sh they're shocked they have no idea that anyone would ever say anything like that. Can you give us an example of this? Yun Tie Chao, I think, is a, a good example. He's got a he's got a, a book. Yun Tie Chao is a, so for your listeners is a, one of the um, you know most well regarded and most famous doctors from that Republican period. He, if I believe correctly, died in nineteen mid maybe nineteen thirty five or so, and he's somebody who came late to Chinese medicine. He was um, in the world of um, literature and um, the publishing world for a while. One of the kind of the most interesting thinkers out there, and he has a he developed his own he developed his. Um, and this was very common in the Republican period. He developed his own school. He had he had a correspondence school. Other kind of leading doctors of the time were developing private schools uh, at that time. And then before that, of course, sort of the master disciple model is is the primary way of learning Chinese medicine. But that still goes on in the Republican period. But but sort of experiments of school are, for, are first starting. And so Yun Tae Chao develops his um his own correspondence school and therefore writes a whole series of textbooks about them. And one of them is a textbook on the pulse. And uh, he has a very interesting explanation for like a, a wiry pulse, Xuan uh, Mai. And he argues that um, the reason we have a wiry pulse and that's connected to the liver is because we have like tension, you know, this is again through the nervous system, tension in the, in the, in the walls of the, of the arteries caused by whatever, but it's, but it's that physical tension in the walls of the artery that explains the Shen Mai. So again, he kind of uses this idea of the liver is analogous to like the nervous system to explain how to the pulse we're feeling. And that's, that's right in his textbook. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Say his name again. Yun Tia Chao. So the spell that would be uh, Y-U-N. Oh yeah. Okay. And then T-I-E. T-I-E. Q-I-A-O. Chao. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's one of my favorites. What else did he have to say about constraints? He well, he he more or less agree, he more or less agreed with this idea that 
uh, about the nervous system and the liver. Let me give you another example because I'm going to teach us a lot to say about a lot of things, and I can kind of sum up a little bit what some of these folks say in a second. But I'll give you another example from another famous doctor named Zhu uh, uh, Weiju. Zhu Weiju. Zhu uh, Weiju. So the last name is Zhu, uh, which is C H U. Yeah, yeah. And then W-E-I-Chu. And then J-U. Very famous clinician from this time. And uh, if I remember correctly, he argues that, um, I don't have the passions in front of me, but it's but it's in the paper. He said, Chinese medicine didn't have a, a notion of the um, the nervous system at all, but it turns out that uh, all discussions of qi are like a pretty good approximation of it. And he says something to the effect that that liver, then he, he expands a little bit. He says liver chi and heart chi issues are all about the nervous system. And then I think he says uh, anything related to heart chi is the involuntary nervous system. Anything related to liver chi is the voluntary nervous system. And so he, he divides it up. That That's way. interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. And I should I should say a little bit more about, about these doctors too, because um, – because actually, some of these speculations about the way the bot, like the body of Western medicine and the body of Chinese medicine, connects, like goes together with some other parts of the way they thought they thought about Chinese medicine, which is really important. So a lot of the doctors who are making this this same kind of connection between the liver and the nervous system were also deeply involved in like some debates that are also very much forgotten from this time period. And one of them is the debate between the cold damage tradition and the warm illness or the warm disorder. I like to call it the warm disorder tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with uh, the Shanghai Lun, the treaties on cold damage disorder. How could we and, not be? Yes. And yeah. you probably also learned about warm illness, Wen Bing, in your- Wen Bing, Chao. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the warm illness school or the warm disorder school is a, is a development of the late imperial period, but particularly the Qing dynasty and especially the, the 19th century. Uh, and one of the things that these doctors, um, absolutely hated. Uh, so this is, um, this would be doctors that include, uh, Lu Yuanlei, uh, Zhu Weiju, Yun Tiechao, those last two I just mentioned, uh, but a whole number. Uh, of other ones who are very interested in sort of this, who are sometimes lumped into that convergence school. But one of the things they absolutely detested was the warm illness school. And they just thought that was like a travesty. They thought that was just a complete um, bastardization of, of Chinese medicine and, a, and folks just like losing their way. So their ideas about the body go together with some other, these like really intense debates at the time. And another thing that's kind of part of it too is also, that's also important to understand is, I think one reason they felt at liberty to sort of make these connections between, like, say, the liver and the nervous system, whereas today we would be scolded by all of our teachers uh, for doing that, is also Western medicine is a very different thing, too, in the Republican period. So not only do you have, like, diseases like neurasthenia uh, coming to China, uh, but Western medicine isn't, the cl- like, this clinically dominant form of medical practice that it is today. So for these doctors, most of them thought that Chinese medicine was clinically much more efficacious than than Western medicine. And this I talk about a little bit in this other paper, slow medicine. They were often very involved in treating all kinds of acute diseases because there weren't antibiotics or other Western medicine solutions for these uh, problems. Their views on the body are part of this uh, really comprehensive, uh, very complicated way of understanding Chinese medicine that uh, in some ways was also, at the same time that they were trying to like bring in pieces of Western medicine, they're also trying to get back to like the Shang Han Lun and like the early Han dynasty and sort of what they think of as true Chinese medicine, which is kind of like emerges in the Han dynasty. And they, they mostly think that anything that happened after the Song dynasty was just garbage. Um, to put it bluntly. You know, what's really <laughs> hilarious to me. We have the same stuff going on today, right? Mm-hmm. There's the people that say, Oh, TC, oh, modern TCM. Well, you know, that's a bunch of BS. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Some imperial formulary. Yeah, right. You know, government intervention, blah, blah, blah. We got to get back to basics. I mean, throughout the history, yes. there have been doctors yeah. arguing about, you know, we got to get back to basics. This new stuff? Yeah, I don't know, right? Or, or this school over here? I mean, I love Unschold's translation of the Nanjing because it's got all these great commentaries in it. The commentaries are fantastic mm-hmm. because you've got yeah. doctors commenting not just on the text, but commenting on other commentaries through decades. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll see some really inflammatory stuff like, you know, oh, you treat your patient this way, they will die, it will be your fault. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was exactly the language of the Republican <laughs> period. Uh, when being formulas were like the kiss of like literally the kiss of death. That that was um, that was a guaranteed way to kill your patients uh, if you if you took that approach according to That's these, right. and and vice versa. The the Wenbing folks thought that Shanghan formulas were much too much too powerful. They're overwhelm they would overwhelm sort of like more delicate constitutions, particularly in the south of China, where people thought to be a little bit more delicate. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, they were uh, so, more delicate and, let's, and more cultured, right? Like and more cultured, yes. Yeah, so, humble, you know, northerners. Yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, there's a famous book by Marta Hansen, if uh, any folks are interested in this debate a little bit. That's a whole history of the of the warm illness school. And uh, she really talks about, yeah, robust northerners and delicate southerners. Oh, great. Yeah, we'll put that on the show notes, too. <laughs> so, but uh, so uh, so yeah, I think one, one important piece of the story, and it's not really fully elaborated in in the article that I wrote. It's a little bit there, but I think it's something that I, I uh, was sort of discovering at the time is that some some of these other influences, these other debates, the influence from Japan also is very important for these doctors. And I don't think I uh, I think I mentioned that in the article, but I think it's something even more important than I realized at the time. Well, so. First, Japan is um, so as as you mentioned, uh, this is a, a, a the early 20th century is a is a time of political weakness in China. The Qing Dynasty is overthrown in 1911, but it was already sort of you know teetering for really since um, 1895 when Japan defeated China in uh, what do we call that war? I think maybe it's the first time of Japanese war, but it was a battle that was fought in Korea, really for control of Korea in, in some sense, or at least for you know, control of sort of political influence in Korea. And Japan is growing quickly, becoming a military power uh, in the early 20th century. It's colonizing parts of China, just like European powers are uh, as well. It eventually takes over Korea, uh, then moves into Manchuria in, in 1931 and sets up a puppet government there. And of course, later there's the war with Japan, the, 19, the second war, which is 1937 and kind of the beginning of World War II, at least in, in China. But Chinese scholars are relatively unaware of sort of what's going on in the rest of East Asia, Korea, and Japan uh, in terms of uh, medical scholarship. Uh, it's sort of, it's mostly, I mean, that's, again, a little bit of a simplification, but it's mostly a one-way street for many centuries. Ideas from China make their way to Korea and Japan, and uh, and they don't really come back. And that's that starts to change in the early 20th century, and it's really in part because of the rise of Japan as a, as a military power, uh, but also as a cultural center, too, because Japan is modernizing very quickly. So you have Chinese intellectuals in the early 20th century uh, going to Japan to study, uh, bringing back lots of ideas of uh, uh, about sort of Western, knowledge, you know, Western sciences and humanities with them. But eventually also some of the ideas of Japanese complement medicine uh, come back as well. And so some of these uh, folks that I'm um, writing about in the 1920s are sort of discover, discovering Japanese scholarship. And they're kind of delighted by what they discover. It's, um, it's really original. It's very different. It's a very different approach to, uh, to clinical practice. So that's also part of, part of the mix. A little bit less, um, if I'm, I think a little bit less in terms of this relationship with like the liver and the nervous system. I don't know if that really kind of, I don't know if there's a direct Japanese uh, inspiration there, but definitely sort of about debates about like warm illness and cold damage. That's very influential in there because there's like, it turns out there's incredible Japanese scholarship on the treaties of cold damage. It's also very different than what's been happening in China. Well, I mean, Kampo medicine, you know, Hanfang. Yeah. I mean, that really comes from the Shanghan one. So that, that comes from the Shanghan Luan. And so I think that's becoming now a little bit more popular here in the U.S. and, and it's certainly in China too. And that is that sort of, that sort of way of thinking about the treaties of cold damage also is influencing some of these Republican era scholars as well. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. 
These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Now, as I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I remember reading the article, but it's been a couple of weeks now. It sounds like a lot of these Western medicine ideas, like you were saying, they started to trickle in because people were going to places like Japan and they were getting exposure to mm-hmm. these ideas. And then, you know, they bring them back. And again, Chinese medicine being what it is, oh, how do we incorporate this into the way that we already think about it? Like you said, there wasn't a whole lot of Western medicine mm-hmm. in China at the time. And in fact, if you had an acute illness, you didn't go to a Western doctor. That would be a bad idea. That that was this was before antibiotics and steroids and such. Right. You went to those Republican era Chinese doctors that actually knew how to treat this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And so that's uh, and that was um, and this gets into this other paper uh, how Chinese medicine became efficacious only for chronic illnesses. Uh, but I interviewed a, a number of uh, very elderly doctors who had kind of trained and practiced in the Republican period. They're all sort of in their 80s and 90s. Um, and Some of these interviews were eight, nine years ago. A few of them are a little bit more recent. But they, they all said the same thing. There was like, you know, in my village, certainly in the countryside, there was there was essentially no Western medicine. Uh, or if there was, it might be like somebody with the skill level of maybe like a nurse or something, maybe a nurse practitioner like in a in a county seat. And then even in the cities, you know, there was missionary hospitals and there was some private practitioners of Western medicine, but they may be very expensive. Missionary hospitals certainly uh, had a, a number of patients, but in general, folks uh, sought out Chinese medicine practitioners. And so I th- so one of the things that stunned me in those interviews was that, um, you know, sort of asked them, so what did you treat? And, you know, it was things like, well, cholera. So there was a smallpox epidemic in 1946. Bubonic plague was big. And at first I thought they were just like, you know, trying to pull one over on me or something. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd learned very, you know, I'd learned very clearly in my clinical practice that if, if, if we saw any infections that we we're pretty much going to use antibiotics. But they also, they all said the same thing. And they all said, if, if you're going to be, uh, if you're going to make it as a Chinese medicine doctor, you better make it treating acute, you know, and then in this case, mostly infectious diseases, because that's, you know, that was the big thing. Yeah. It, it's so different from how yeah we think about it now. We can, uh, I mean, that's that's a whole different podcast. So yeah, just yeah, leave that, that kettle of fish yeah. for a moment. <laughs> you know, with with all this background that you've got, that all this anthropological study, plus you've got clinical work, I'm curious to know how all of this looks for you in your current practice when you're seeing patients. If you have someone coming in with something that looks like, well, what most of us would think of as liver cheek constraint. Are there other ways that your mind is working and perhaps other formulations that you lean on for this, I'm going to say, neurasthenia, stress, complex of oddball symptoms? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I try to um, uh, at least not jump to that, and uh, and I think you know one. Uh, so one, and we, I think we all learn this, but you know, I think when we start to make those equivalences, like uh, rambling powder is good for stress, we start forgetting about the the Chinese medicine indications. You know, I, I try to try to stay within sort of the Chinese medicine system as best I can, but I think also. At least for me, you know, some of the, we, in fact, we've had this uh, discussion a little bit by email. At least some of this research that I think opens me up to at least thinking differently a little bit about what I've, you know, the sort of basic textbooks, textbooks knowledge that we've, that we've uh, learned and to go back and look at something like uh, Yi which uh, frankly, I don't, I don't use that much in my, in my practice, but, but I certainly understand it very differently now than, uh, than I would have. And I, if, and if I did have occasion to use it, I would, I think, be trying to think about it more in its kind of historical, moment than uh and then as a sort of like a treatment for liver cheek constraint Mm -hmm. so maybe if there's more middle burner indications or i remember you saying earlier in our conversation today there's what five or six different constraints in there you can kind of look at it and go 
Well, it works on these various levels of constraint. Take it as a blueprint, modify it based on what you actually see. I think that's certainly one lesson. And uh, I mean, another lesson from all the Republican doctors is um, that that I look at is that um, is that there's there's so there's so much more diversity of thought out there in the world of Chinese medicine than we realize. I sometimes don't like the critique of TCM. We can talk about that in a second. But at the same time, we need to always kind of recognize just, you know, what we've learned is sort of the, the tip of the iceberg. If we can kind of get back into um, some other writings and um, really dig into some of these formulas that we use in our clinical practice, we might discover other aspects of it that we that we just didn't appreciate, you know, the first time around. Yeah. I had a few thoughts actually on this idea of like um, TCM and um, textbooks and things like that, if, mm-hmm. you, if you want yeah, to let's talk about it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I studied in China, I'm a little bit disconnected from like the the world of Chinese medicine here. So I don't totally, but I, as my understanding, sort of TCM is almost a dirty word in the Chinese medicine community and everyone wants to get back to classical Chinese. Is that right? Well, I don't don't know about everybody. Here's, here's (laughs) what I've discovered. TCM, this is just me, right? My opinion. I'm on a soapbox. Actually, I'm not on a soapbox, but I got a soapbox. It's called Geological. Anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> we all learn TCM. TCM gives us a common language. It gives us some um, ways of parsing reality. It gives us some ways of understanding physiology from another point of view. And what I discovered is it gave me a basic language. So when I ended up in Taiwan and China, I could talk to Chinese doctors and they would understand what I was saying. I could ask them questions that made sense to them. They would give me back answers that I could understand. Sometimes that was within the fond way of TCM. Sometimes that was other ideas that they had that they got from a family tradition or their own experience or wherever. But the bottom line was, is we had a common language to communicate with. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I, I know TCM gets a lot of bad play. I don't know how much it is that TCM is bad stuff and how much of it is you know, much like the Mancha doctors, right? Back in the day, it's like, well, you know, I'm a Mancha doctor, right? I'm not like that, you know, McDonald's-like doctor down the street. You know, I mean, I think human beings forever have been setting themselves as, well, my stuff is different than that stuff, and here's how, and here's why it's important, so do business with me. Yeah. yeah. Some of it, I think, is branding. Yeah. Some of it, yeah. I think, is just human beings saying, you know, I got something different. I, I mean, I guess I'm just grateful to it in a way, because it's what got me started. It was, I mean, we'll hear your opinion here in a moment, but it just seems to me that TCM was an attempt at a certain moment in time to try to keep the population of a giant teetering country healthy. And they actually pulled from the brilliance of a number of different people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not that there's only TCM, but it's, you know, it's not a bad sort of a Reader's Digest version of Chinese medicine. Yeah, I, I mean, I really, I really agree with that. I think um, now, I think one, maybe one, you know, I, I sense sort of maybe one frustration here in the U.S. is that perhaps people take, and I think TCM kind of refers to probably textbook medicine, and folks are getting their textbooks and you know getting sort of the Chinese medicine textbooks and, and translation more or less here in the U.S. But um, when that's taken as sort of like the beginning and the end and all there is in Chinese medicine. Um, maybe some people reject it because then they're like, oh, there's more. And I think that, I think the, the more is always, is always apparent in China. Everyone knows the textbooks are just a, your starting point. It's definitely not where you're going to end. But they're also, it is, I think, I think it, uh, not only does it give you a common language, but it, it, um, it, it also kind of served a lot of really important functions. What's, you know, what we have all benefited from, which is it, it helped to establish sort of, the institutions of Chinese medicine, uh, you know, literally the school I, I went to, but also the hospitals where I trained at. So it was part of kind of an institutionalization of, of Chinese medicine that took place in the 1950s. And part of what happened too was there was an attempt to, or part of, I think this is both the, its strength and its weakness is that it, it was uh, a compromise. So it had to, it had to sort of, 
it had to be sort of general knowledge that most everyone could agree on. Like, and you know, there was a whole set of doctors that were pulled together to write the textbooks. So it had to be sort of common knowledge that everyone could more or less agree on it. But it was this, this idea of consensus was really behind it. So things like I just mentioned, like debates between like the cold damage school and the warm illness school, like that had to go away. Um, uh, and uh, in the textbooks, and also I think another thing happens too, which is that in the really beginning of the 1950s and certainly by the 60s and 70s is that Western medicine is changing profoundly. It's clinically becoming a much more efficacious form of medicine. It's becoming sort of the dominant medicine in the world. And it's also become the dominant medicine in China. The Communist Party is really behind uh, not only the institution of Chinese medicine, but even more so the institutionalization of Western medicine. So Chinese medicine starts, the profession as a whole, starts to uh, rethink like who are we like vis-a-vis Western medicine. And that's a very different kind of way of thinking about Chinese medicine than in the Republican period. So that's why it was totally fine for Yun Tiachao or Lu Yanlei or uh, Chu Weiju or any of those doctors to say, yeah, the liver is a really great way of thinking about the nervous system because they weren't particularly threatened by the profession of Western medicine, which is like there was you know very few doctors of it uh, in China at the time. And it was just like this other body of knowledge that seemed really useful to borrow from. Uh, whereas in the in the in the communist era, Western medicine is a is a real challenge to the practice of Chinese medicine. And so textbooks have to be written and kind of in light of that challenge. Although they're very careful to sort of never acknowledge that, to never like state that. Uh, but you know, Western medicine really can't be part of Chinese medicine textbooks. Chinese medicine textbooks have to then highlight the characteristics of Chinese medicine, but that the characteristics really increasingly kind of vis-a-vis Western medicine. And so it must be sort of in this complicated relationship. It's got to be different, but not too different. <laughs> it's, you know, and so that's part of what happens with Western medicine. And if you just take this idea of like liver cheek constraint, some of the ideas from the Republican era doctors make their way into the textbooks, but they don't make, they don't make it with the same explanation. Hey, the liver is just like the nervous system. That would be you know, totally verboten. Uh, you know, you can't can't make that analogy. But the like the treatments, the idea, the idea that liver cheek constraint treats all kinds of emotional disorders do make it into the textbooks. And and in the paper I wrote, I sort of trace that. Like you can see the early editions of the textbooks. You know, very much carry on sort of some of that thinking from these Republican era innovators, but they put it in this form that's. Uh, maybe very textbooky for <laughs> the lack of a better better word, but it's this kind of consensus-driven sort of series of documents uh, and texts, and it uh, and I think that's just like one small example. So, but a lot of things are coming in, and, and they're not going to throw out warm illness because not everyone can agree to throw it out, and they're not going to throw out certainly not going to, and they're not going to have maybe this different notion of cold damage because not everyone can agree on that. So it has to be like whatever goes into the textbook had to be things that more or less everyone can kind of agree on. And so that, uh, and even actually the cold, the cold damage is another example. Um, some of these same scholars who are talking about liver cheek constraint in the Republican period are also like proposing like radical reinterpretations of like the, the treaties on cold damage disorders. And, um, you know, none of that carries on in, in the communist era because it was just too radical. And so textbooks are these consensus documents. That's part of the frustration is because we don't know how to read them. We don't know how to, we, we can't quite see that. We, they're just taught to us and given to us as sort of like, this is it. Here's the complete medicine. That's right. Med- in fact, it's kind of like the table of contents of medicine. Yeah. 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 You know, and we've got to go in and dig the rest of it out on our own. It helps if you read some Chinese. Yeah. 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 So there's so many examples about, there's so many examples of this and, uh, and we have a hard time kind of looking at those textbooks critically. Uh, and I think also perhaps for practitioners in the West, a hard time to even know that there's so much beyond what's, what's in the textbooks. And I think that's where people kind of then reject them as TCM, as some sort of perversion of Chinese medicine. I think that's not giving the textbooks enough, enough credit because they really enabled kind of this institution to persist and flourish, uh, even, even though it was, again, more of a consensus form of medicine and really perhaps not the way anyone would actually practice medicine. <laughs> you know, it, it's sort of like the top yeah. of the bell curve, right? You get the average of something, but you see very few people that are actually average. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, right. Um, that's right. Well, you know, I, I mean, as, as I listen to you explain this, the pressures that were brought to bear on the country, on the medicine, you know, as, as things move through time, you know, it's, it's impossible 
to escape the influence of our times. And you know, it's lovely having this conversation with you today, getting this glimpse of Republican, early Republican uh, China, what the medicine looked like, where some of their ideas came from. And then, then we look at the pressures that were brought to bear for TCM. I, I remember when I was in school, my teachers said, there are some patterns here. This is to help guide your thinking. These are boxes. And there are things that we see out there. Don't put your patients in a box. Understand the mechanisms behind what creates these boxes. Pay attention to those mechanisms. And I think one of the problems with air quotes again, TCM, we expect to see these uh, you know, boxes and when they don't show up, it's like, well, what's that? Or, oh, well, this is not effective. Well, we need to actually understand the pathodynamic that's going on, which I think the books are like um, exercises in thinking. If we can learn to understand that stuff, then we can take those principles and apply them in all kinds of ways. And you could sit down in the same room with a Wen Bing person and a Shang Han Lin person and, you know, enjoy some whiskey together because you probably got more commonality than differences when you get down to that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yes, and ho- hopefully you would find the commonalities. Now, even the word pattern that you just mentioned, I would also argue that's um, Bian Zheng Linzhi, you know, which we think of as our key methodology, pattern discrimination and treatment determination. It's, it's, a, it's a term that doesn't, it doesn't appear until the, the late 1950s. So it's, it's, it's really... Um, oh, now you just uh, opened a whole new can of worms here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It, it, it is it is really an invention of of, of the textbooks themselves. So yeah, that's a whole other that's a, that's that's the next podcast. Maybe. <laughs> that really is uh, food for another conversation. I think we're going to have to put a bookmark in it for today, though. Um, but we can certainly pick that up another time. Before we uh, before we sign off, I I'm just curious to know. In addition to all the writing you're doing, the practice you're doing. I mean, what do you got going on? I mean, you've got your, it sounds like you have your finger in a number of pies these days. So what, I mean, what's your day look like? It's a bit, it's a bit hectic, but um, uh, yeah, so I'm, bu- I'm busy teaching and, uh, and I have my clinical practice, which, um, you know, I have to b- balance with my, t- my teaching schedule. And I'm also a member of a, a founding member of a new company called Dow Labs. Uh, so we've been um, working on developing uh, at the moment, mostly just classical formulas, but trying to, um, help popularize them a little bit uh, with with consumers and work with practitioners to, to sell those formulas. One thing we've been doing is to try and um, flavor them so that maybe people will be a little bit more excited about uh, uh, taking them. But anyway, so that, so uh, yeah, I've got a couple, I've got my fingers in a Wait, couple of bags. Are you saying you've got a cherry flavored ume wine? Uh, <laughs> well, we have, um, now, now, now you're, now you're, now I'm going to forget the different flavors. But, um, uh, well, for example, we're working on, um, du hor ji sheng tang, which is, uh, one, one of my favorite formulas. And, um, we're trying to make a sort of a Mexican chocolate sort of, uh, beverage. <laughs> 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 um, but you know, if it, if it, if it, if it works, I think it's great because then, um, one of the, one of the hard parts for me always is getting my patients to take, to take the, take the medicine and, uh, so if we can um, come up with some ways that are a little bit more innovative to, and make it a little bit more appealing, I think that'll be be great for everyone. Well, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time today. I, I thoroughly enjoyed your articles. We will have those up over on the show notes page. So uh, y'all listening to this right now, you can go check those out. They They take an evening to read. They take a little bit of thought and it will broaden your perspective and some really delightful ways. I think you'll like them. So, so look for those, uh, any other items that we've talked about of interest, you'll, you'll find some stuff there on the show notes, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Michael, it was a pleasure. Um, always fun to get to talk about uh, my research. So, um, anytime love to talk about some more of it. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, If you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.